The purpose of a health system is to improve health. It's not to do good anti-corruption. So the question should always be, how can we weave in anti-corruption to enable the best health outcomes? Welcome to Kickback. My name is Jonathan Kleinpass. The world is still strongly under the influenza of the coronavirus. And our guest today is Sarah Steingrüber. She's an independent global health consultant. Naturally, since Sarah's expertise is global health, Matthew and Sarah will talk about corruption risks that are related to the coronavirus crisis. But their conversation doesn't stop there. They're also going to talk about issues that healthcare systems around the world are facing in general. For example, the monetization of public health. And even though there are lots of problems to be tackled, the conversation ends with a positive example of reforms in Ukraine. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Kickback. Over to Sarah and Matthew. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. I hope everybody in our listening audience is uh, safe and healthy during this uncertain and unprecedented time. On today's episode, I'm very happy to have the opportunity to speak with Sarah Steingruber, who is currently an independent global health consultant focusing on the relationship between corruption and public health. Sarah's previously worked with Transparency International in their global health program and is also the global health lead for the Curbing Corruption Project and will clearly have a lot to say about a topic that is in the forefront of everybody's mind. So Sarah, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to join me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Let me begin by asking you to tell me and our audience a little bit more about your own background, how you came to be interested in the relationship between corruption and health topics, and what your own work, both your own independent work and your work with the NGOs that you've collaborated with, has looked like. Yeah, so my background actually is is purely in public health. So I came at this topic from the public health perspective. I, I started out by studying uh, general health sciences and then moved into sort of the international health and development sphere. Um, I worked a number of years more broadly on development and health issues, um, such as maternal and child health and, and migration health. Um, and then I moved from that sort of into to working with the GIZ on access to medicines. Um, and this introduced me to a number of issues uh, that kind of connected with fraud and undue influence, particularly in supply chains and logistics of medicines. Um, so that was sort of my first touch point with the subject. And then I moved to, to London and, and began working with the Transparency International Health Initiative. Um, and of course, that sort of catapulted me into the topic um, very forcefully. And um, because of the, the nature of the program, I was able to, to really dig deep into the various topics that we were, we were looking at. Um, and the approach that that program takes is it looks at the entire value chain of healthcare systems and um, looks at the risks and, and vulnerabilities of these different um, components of healthcare systems and how corruption can, can implicate, uh, implicate them. 
when I was there, we were working specifically on issues of research and development, procurement, and service delivery. Um, there are other various um, aspects of the value chain, of course, but those three were the, the primary topics of interest. So I was able to, to dive very deeply into, um, into those issues. And uh, one of the major projects that the program is working on looks specifically at increasing transparency through open contracting in procurement um, of health systems. And so following from, from the work with, um, with TI, I, I now have become an independent consultant and um, I work uh, with a number of different entities on issues of anti-corruption and health, um, such as the U4 Anti-Corruption Center, the World Bank and the WHO. Great. So the issues that you just spoke about, corruption, public health, particularly related to things like supply chains, um, logistics and so forth, are important in all times, but mm -hmm. it will come as no surprise that right now, I think the issue that everybody is thinking about who considers these issues at all is the relationship between these kinds of concerns and the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. And many advocacy groups, NGOs, and so forth have been raising concerns about corruption risks associated specifically with the COVID-19 coronavirus response. So could you say a little bit more about the current crisis specifically and what, based on the fact that you've been working in this area for several years before the current pandemic, what are the things that you're most worried about? What things should the larger community be most worried about when it comes specifically to corruption risk as it relates to the current crisis? So I think it's important to kind of look at the issue, there, there are two kind of big areas, or the way that I see it anyway. There is the, the, the hampering of the health response because of corruption, how it implicates our ability to respond um, to the health crisis itself. But then there is a, an opportunistic corruption that can come out by the fact that we're all getting so distracted and this instability is, is opening up opportunities for, for corruption to happen beyond the health sector. So when it comes to the health sector, um, the things that I'm, I'm most concerned about are, you know, that what little infrastructure has been established to combat or to prevent, mitigate corruption, um, that they will be undermined and that there will be no defense effectively. Um, and that that will prevent us from being able to actually save people's lives because that is in effect the problem of corruption in health systems is that it, it kills people. It leads to inequalities and inefficiencies in health systems. So I'm really concerned, um, concerned about that. If we look at sort of some of the specifics, um, I think that the influx of funding that has come about, um, governments have made incredible commitments to, to address the pandemic, but that comes with a lot of risk because as I said, the, the infrastructure that is, is there is weak. There has not to date been enough investment made into safeguarding health systems against, uh, against corruption, which is why at least 6% of all health investment is lost to corruption in a given year. Um, and that's a conservative estimate. 
So we run the risk that that number gets much higher and that not only will the pandemic not be able to be addressed, it could actually have long-term implications into the health of the health systems to their ability to function. Let me follow up on that. I want to talk about the other issue you mentioned as well about the way that the pandemic may open up opportunities for other forms of corruption because we're so focused on the immediate crisis for understandable reasons. But but let me stick for a moment with this issue of corruption in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which again is an issue that, that many have raised. It seems like one of the challenges in a situation like this, a real emergency situation though, is that a lot of the measures that anti-corruption advocates, groups like Transparency International and others often advocate in for what we might call for back, lack of a better term, normal times, tend to slow the process down, right? We have more oversight, we have more safeguards and so on and so forth. And one of the challenges of an emergency situation almost by definition is there's some urgency about getting the money out the door now, right? Whether the hospitals need uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators right now, people who have lost their jobs because of stay-at-home orders need their uh, relief checks right now. So can you talk to me, as, again, as you've worked in this area and I really haven't, but can you talk me through how we in what we'll call the anti-corruption community should think through that apparent tension or trade-off? How can we try to preserve integrity in these systems so, as you say, we don't make things worse while recognizing the fact that this is an emergency situation and a lot of the safeguards that we would ordinarily prefer are likely to realistically slow down the process of getting money, goods, and services to people who need it? So it's interesting that you asked that. I, I recently, um, together with uh, some, some colleagues, we, we wrote an article that looked at reconfigurating how to tackle corruption in the health sector. And it was published as part of the WHO special feature um, uh, that recently came out in Global Health Action. And in that article, um, we advocate for an approach that looks at the specific points of vulnerability for corruption in a given health system or program or project, what have you, um, this sort of approach can apply to anything, um, any kind of uh, scale. And it begs the question of what are the, what are the really hot spots for corruption? What are the types of corruption that are most likely to occur and are most likely to have the greatest amount of harm to your overall objective? So if my objective is to ensure that my healthcare workers have the sufficient amount of personal protective equipment that they need in order to do their jobs, so that they don't also fall ill, then I need to ask myself kind of <laughs> what do I need to do in order to ensure that that objective is reached? That might in fact mean that I have to also ask myself what kinds of corruption am I comfortable with occurring? There, because in an emergency situation, you're not going to be able to get everything. So you have to ask yourself, what's the most important, what's mostly going to undermine my objectives, and what can I live with? And I think that that's sort of the, the three questions that need to be asked. That sounds 
quite plausible to me. Can you flesh that out a little bit? And I haven't had a chance to read your article yet. We'll try to link to it in the in the podcast episode notes, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Can you maybe flesh that out a little bit with either a real or potentially stylized hypothetical example to give a sense of how? So I've got the, I got the questions, but but can you give me a setting in which you those? How would you ask those questions in a specific setting, and what kinds of answers might you get? Can you illustrate it with something? Again, it doesn't have to be a, a genuine real world example. It can be something hypothetical, but just spell out a little bit more what that would look like at the operational level. So. One of the most important things for the response of this outbreak is the achievement of a vaccine or at least a, a treatment um, that can, can treat someone who does have the disease. Now, when it comes to generating a vaccine, we, of course, require the investments um, in research and development and many uh, biotechs and, and pharmaceutical companies and research institutes to work collectively together. Now, under normal circumstances, there is an extremely arduous, time-consuming regulatory process in order to be able to get something to market. Um, now, we don't have that time, however. You know, it typically can take anywhere up to 10 years for development or even longer. We don't have that time. So one could say, well, I'm comfortable in expediting the regulatory process, you know, doing as, you know, a, a, as much checks and balances are needed. But what I am not willing to compromise on is that the results of the clinical trials and their uh, reports and ensuring that the, how the trial is conducted, I am not willing to compromise on that. Because that will be the indicator as to whether or not the vaccine is in fact successful, it is in fact effective, and we'll do what we expect it to do. We do not need repeats of, of historical examples of um, medicines or, or other products that were purported to be effective, but in fact were found out later to be not because the trials weren't available and there were massive investments made. So what we may not be willing to compromise on then is the results being made transparent. Great. Um that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask, sort of continuing on this theme, I, I'm not sure how closely you've been following these, these uh, debates or conversations, but with respect to some of the multilateral institutions that provide aid and support, so organizations like the IMF, for example, there have been uh, there has been great pressure on these organizations to provide more emergency funding for coronavirus response, both to address the, the first order public health crisis and also to address the severe economic dislocation that has been associated with the, the health crisis. The impulse, though, to provide this kind of emergency funding has been met with some skepticism or criticism from the anti-corruption advocacy community, including organizations like Transparency International, where you used to work. So I'm thinking in particular of one specific example, but I'm sure there are more examples. The, a coalition of civil society organizations wrote an open letter to the IMF saying, you guys need to put a lot more safeguards and requirements on the funding that you are providing. And they laid out a bunch of things that they wanted to see. I, I don't off the top of my head remember the details. You, you might. And the IMF's managing director replied in a way that broadly embraced the, the general goals and emphasized the fund's commitment to 
continuing to push for good governance and so forth, but seem to, uh, I don't want to say push back exactly, but emphasize the need for a case-by-case, country-tailored approach, the urgency of uh, emergency funding, and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering whether the kinds of ideas and framework that you and your collaborators have developed in the article that you mentioned and elsewhere gives you a perspective or view on the same kind of tension we were just discussing playing out in the context of multilateral aid agencies, which, of course, they're not in the business of developing vaccines. They don't control the regulatory process, but there's this question, right? Should organizations like not just the IMF, the World Bank, GIZ, the German donor agency you mentioned, the U.S. counterpart, USAID, DFID, to what extent should these organizations that uh, are under a lot of pressure to respond to generally poor country governments in crisis, you know, get the money out the door, and to what extent do the civil society groups that say, no, 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 you need to put a lot more safeguards in place before you start writing checks have a point? So I can't really speak too, too much about how the anti-corruption safeguards um, of the IMF, but I do know a bit about the the global fund. Um, before I go into that, though, I, I think the overarching problem of all this is that there's an obvious underinvestment or lack of investment in anti-corruption safeguardings for these major donors under normal cir- circumstances. So I think that that's something that we as a collective anti-corruption community and certainly as a donor community, um, as well as the national governments that fund uh, these donor agencies, there needs to be a lot of reflection about how much are we investing in anti-corruption under normal circumstances? Because when, when it all comes down to it and we have a crisis situation, we realize we're not prepared in the way that we thought we were. Now, coming back to the, to the global fund, um, there, the anti-corruption types of um, safeguards that are being implemented at the global fund and are continuously under sort of quality management and assurance to, to improve. They are considered sort of in the health sector, a, you know, a beacon of, of best practice, if, we, if I can call it that. And one of the ways in which they do that is if corruption is found to implicate a project or a grant, they will retract that funding at a later date. So they will pull it back. Um, so that comes with a pretty serious consequence. And they have quite a number of of anti-corruption safeguards. And I'll just give you an example for for procurement. It is using a very um, transparent procurement process. And there are um, very strict rules and regulations around procurement that make the mass sums of of medicines and and other uh, commodities like bed nets ensures that they're getting the best price and that they are supporting good business practices. So I think that for the future, I don't know how we can really address this in the moment. I think we just kind of have to hope that on the other end of things, um, we can retract some monies back or if depending on the length of this, uh, this outbreak and how long it takes systems to sort of adjust, maybe there is opportunity for, for cross fertilization between these organizations. But I think it speaks more to to our lack of preparedness and need to invest in in more anti-corruption safeguards in normal times. The lack of preparedness is really worrisome and dispiriting, not just because it's a problem, but because although 
we haven't seen a global pandemic on this scale for at least 100 years. It's not like this is the first time there's been a public health emergency that's required an immediate emergency response and shoveling a lot of money out the door. So the one that leaps immediately to my mind was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa about, remember, this was about 2013? 2013 um, to 2016. 2013 to 2016. So I suppose it's, and a lot of the concerns that we're hearing now about the COVID-19, corruption with respect to COVID-19 emergency response funding, I, and again, I'm not a public health expert, but I just remember reading about a lot of these similar kinds of concerns arising with respect to the response to the 2013 to 2016 West African Ebola outbreak. Um, so the fact that we're still not prepared for something like this, I guess, is a little bit discouraging. On that topic, though, because I don't know that much about it, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners will know that much about it, what can you tell me about what lessons, if any, we may have learned from the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, particularly with respect to corruption risks and how to confront them? Did we learn anything? Did we? Are, are there things that come out of that experience that we can take going forward, even in a moment like this, where maybe we haven't done enough beforehand to try to at least mitigate the risks that we're facing? So there were some learnings that came out of that, and there were an, some organizations that that were found to to have um, been affected by corruption, uh, particularly in procurement and, and in the financial management um, at the organizational level. Um, I think, with regards to to what have we have we learned. Um, procurement is always going to be sort of the honeypot, and so we need to do as much as we can to ensure that the finances are um, allocated as best as possible. But I think another important thing that was learned, and uh, there is a lot of effort being tried to to fight against it, but is the misinformation, um, which can contribute to to corruption. I wouldn't say it's a, a direct link, um, but the sort of the infodemic, as it's being called, that was also kind of going on in um, during the Ebola crisis in West Africa, um, where there was a, you know, misinformation or poor information, conspiracy theories, um, and that all led to distrust in the government and in the response. And it can also lead to to concerns around things like absenteeism, so that where healthcare workers are not going to work because of this type of misinformation and leading to distrust. So they're less willing to put their lives on the line for a system that's not supporting them. So I think those are two lessons that can be can be pulled from from those experiences is that safeguard your procurement as best you can. Although, to be honest, some of it was because of the bureaucratic and arduous procedures and procurement. So I, I think it goes back to um, what I was saying in the beginning of what types of corruption could you live with? How can you trim back the fat in uh, in your processes to ensure that you reach your objective? I feel like that's a really interesting insight and lesson because often when we think about fighting corruption and procurement, we think about adding more forms of review and safeguards and so forth. But it sounds like you're suggesting that at least in a crisis situation and maybe even in non-crisis situations, if you overdo that or do it badly, such that the system is too slow, that just creates incentives and opportunities to disregard the rules or work around them because everyone recognizes that they're not, uh, that they would inhibit an effective response to a, to a 
sort of a desperate situation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think this was mentioned during the podcast with Dr. Vianne that you, you find yourself in a situation where the number of signatures that you require for a very simple procedure uh, becomes so arduous that it just makes sense to, to just forge them. And then you're incentivizing bad behavior. And so I think it's important to identify what's really necessary in, you know, in, in many cases, what can be digitalized and, and encrypted so that it can be used securely so that we don't have these arduous bureaucratic processes or that we can speed things up, in fact, um, whilst maintaining uh, integrity. We could probably spend the entire uh, conversation on this topic, but I want to circle back to something that you said earlier, because when I asked you initially about what were your chief concerns at the intersection of corruption and the coronavirus pandemic, you mentioned first concerns about corruption in the response itself or undermining the response itself. And that's what we've been talking about for the last several minutes. But you also made this other interesting point that you were concerned about a second effect where the pandemic, the attention to the pandemic and the response to the pandemic might actually create opportunities for corruption that don't have anything directly to do with the pandemic because we're distracted or because our usual checks and balances are uh, being relaxed or eroded. Um, this is something that I, I know you've written about this before. I've read a little bit of what you've had to say about it and others as well, but can you just elaborate on exactly what you mean and maybe give some examples of the sort of thing that you're concerned about? Sure. So I would describe it as sort of the opportunistic corruption, taking advantage of the of the situation to to push political agendas, for example. Um, we see this uh, happening in some countries. Hungary is one example where um, the president, Viktor Orban, has, is now ruling by decree, and that was pushed through parliament very quickly, um, and it's indefinite. We don't know when that will, will, will stop. Um, and it, it's generally concerning because of the influx of, of populist politics and, um, and that this... This, this crisis is being being used in order to, to garner more power um, or to to abuse power. Interesting. So that that sounds like that's clearly related to corruption, but that's not a corruption specific risk exactly. It's more that leaders who want to consolidate power and eliminate checks on their authority can use the pandemic as a pretext or justification for power grabs, which of course might well exacerbate corruption, especially so-called grand corruption in the longer term. Although the point you're making, if I understand correctly, is not really a corruption-specific point. It's not that the pandemic is facilitating corruption specifically. It's more like it's creating a pretext for power grabs that could have a whole range of pernicious consequences, including an increase in high-level or grand corruption. Am I, am I understanding the point you're making accurately? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I, I wrote about was that um, my my concern that in in our efforts to try and and tackle the pandemic that we are opening up opportunities for corruption opening up opportunities for um and taking advantage of power and i and one thing that i'm i'm very concerned about is that in our efforts to counter corruption that we might actually be undermining what 
system might be left in the aftermath. I think there needs to be a bit of a balance between tackling corruption and the public health outcomes. We There is still a need to ensure that our institutions are are protected because what will we be left with after? What is the implications for these systems, for public trust in institutions? What will that look like after the pandemic is over? I think there needs to be a lot more thought around what's the world we'll be left with. Well, one certainly hopes we'll eventually return to some semblance of what we might call normal times, although with each passing day that that's looking further and further off. Um, that is maybe a, an opportunity to transition to another set of questions I want to ask you. Um, the, the pandemic is obviously at the forefront of everybody's mind, and I'm sure that as someone who specializes in public health and corruption, it's, it's like all anyone wants to talk to you about. But of course, this is not the only important issue at the intersection of corruption and public health before the pandemic hit. Even if you put aside other crisis situations like the Ebola crisis that we were just discussing, there's a whole range of, of issues and concerns at that intersection of, of corruption and public health. So maybe we should step back a little bit and take, a, take something of a wider lens. In addition to the coronavirus uh, pandemic and other emergency situations, what would you say are some of the most important issues that you and others have worked on at the intersection of corruption and health where you think the anti-corruption community, the health community, or the broader community should be paying more attention to addressing these issues? Well, I'll start by saying I think that there needs to be generally more collaboration between the health and anti-corruption um, fields, simply because, as we see, our safeguards in the health sector are insufficient, especially in the time of greatest need. So I think um, that is certainly certainly something that needs to be urgently addressed, that we don't have enough cooperation or you know putting heads together to to come up with better strategies that would en enable us to have better safeguards um if we look at a specific specific topic um i think that there there is a lot to be unpacked there's considerable concern that i have about the monetization of health uh, which is it should be a, a public good and it is a human right. At least that's how people in public health see it. And the, the monetization of health and the privatization of health and how it's becoming more expensive, the technologies are becoming more and more expensive, the incentives for drug development are becoming driven by monetary gain and um, expectations of profit. And that, of course, is a huge concern. And if you then factor in the influence of companies, especially at the political level, and how that can influence regulatory authorities and their decision making, I think that that is, is the next like or the big frontier because we can talk all day about informal payments but arguably that's often a symptom of corruption higher up in the chain i think we need to start asking ourselves why are health systems struggling so much when we are living in a time in the world where there's unprecedented unprecedented wealth and um arguably there should be so much available to support health systems but they're struggling. And it's not, we like to think that um, 
these issues are are issues that are affecting the so-called global south but they are slowly creeping into Europe and into the United States um, where the cost of healthcare is not you know governments can no longer foot the bill and the influence that that private entities can have on health care provision and the health agenda, and by that I'm talking specifically about research pipelines. I mean, if you look at what comes onto market in a given year, um, 1% is actual innovation, and the rest is either me-toos, so adding to a treatment um, that already exists, it's something that is ineffective, or in fact, it is something that's harmful and it's being allowed onto market. And I think that a lot of that stems from an, an undue influence on decision-making processes. I think that is the next big frontier. Okay, so I'd, I'd love to hear you un unpack that a little bit more because uh, corruption is a term, as anyone who works in this field knows, it has a lot of different meanings or shades of meaning. Uh, none of them are right, in my view. It's just like many words, it has different meanings in different contexts. But when we use that terminology to describe the flaws in uh, healthcare policy, pharmaceutical reg regulation, and other topics, the suggestion, I think many people would take that as, as, as a suggestion of um, not just an attempt, not just bad policy, because there can be a lot of policies that are bad, but most people wouldn't describe them as corrupt. And presumably, not just that policy is bad because people who have an interest in that policy have successfully lobbied for it. Um, I think if we, def but it sounds like you're saying something a little bit more specific than that. When you talk about undue influence and frame that undue influence as a manifestation of corruption, it sounds like there's something much more pointed, or that you're you're highlighting something much more troublesome than what we might call garden variety lobbying and policy failure. So can you say a little bit more about the ways in which you view policy making these areas as corrupted as opposed to simply, I shouldn't say simply because it'd be a big problem, but, but misguided? I think it's important for me to say that, I mean, because my background is purely in public health, I come at this issue from a human rights perspective. So if we think that health is a human right and that everyone should have the ability or at least be enabled to live a healthy life and included in the WHO's definition, we need certain products and certain approaches that will support that. And if we go back to the definition of corruption, which if we take the TI definition, the abuse of entrusted power for private gain, then... There is entrusted power in those who have the knowledge and abilities to be able to provide those products that are necessary for the maintenance of the human right to health. And I don't think it's, I won't make a comment on anything specific, um, but I think if you, if you follow that arc of logic, um, you find that there is an abuse of public trust, at least. By whom? By the government regulators or by the pharmaceutical companies or healthcare providers? 
who who has been entrusted with power that they're abusing for their private gain. I'm just I'm I'm genuinely curious. I'm trying to understand the the way you're framing the argument. I would I would argue that there's there's probably a a mixture of um of influence influence from certain parties mixed with the vulnerabilities of others. I think an example of this is um, in the United States, there was the Medicare uh, Part D, which was negotiated. And there is um, there are senators who are on tape describing that they didn't write the bill, that companies did. And um, it led to a, a clause, in, in, which has now been revised, but it led to a clause in, um, in Medicare Part D that prevented negotiations on pharmaceutical prices. Now, I'm not saying that that is happening everywhere, but I think that we need to be very, very conscious and critical if we, if we believe that health is a human right and every person has, should have the access to that human right and that should be upheld for them then we need to be very critical about the monetization of health because it does lend to an abuse of entrusted power. Not everyone can create medical devices, not everyone can create pharmaceuticals, but they are necessary. Um, and so by default, there is entrusted power being provided to these entities that produce them. Interesting. So the suggestion, and this is what I want to clarify, because although I've heard people make arguments of the sort you're making before, I haven't heard it framed quite this way. In your view, the people who run the private sector, pharmaceutical or healthcare providers are themselves entrusted with power that they're abusing for their private gain. So it's not just they are the corruptors, they're actually the corrupted entities, because they're the ones who are abusing their entrusted power for their the private gain of their firms. That's the idea? I mean, I find it very difficult to, it, it is a very difficult argument to make because, I mean, I know people who work in pharmaceutical companies and a company is, you know, to, to define companies as corrupted, I think is very problematic because there are very good people in these companies who are doing incredible work and these companies are absolutely necessary. Um, I, I just think from the anti-corruption perspective or the um, accountability perspective, there needs to be um, a lot more criticism around how the market is, is sort of, or market forces are, are being allowed to be driven. But again, I'd like to reiterate that I'm coming from a perspective that health is a human right. Not everyone thinks of it that way. So the, the topic that you're touching on, we're not going to have an, a, a, enough time to go into it. I mean, we could spend days people could write could write books have written books about this issue that you're that you're getting us into here but i just want to spend a few more minutes on it because it seems so fascinating it seems like there's a genuine tension between all of the problems as you just highlighted with framing healthcare and access to healthcare in market or monetary terms with on the other hand the fact that in practice you need to pay doctors. You need to produce pharmaceutical products. Like the, it, the money is necessary to make the system function. So on the one hand, we have, I think, the very appealing and attractive ideology or ideal that health is a human right. Everyone is equally entitled to it. It shouldn't be allocated based on wealth or ability to pay. With we have that ideal, but then we've got the kind of grubby reality that to run a system, it would be very difficult to do it without 
appropriate monetary incentives. And you, you alluded to the informal payments problem, and I'm reminded of at least some who have written on that problem have discussed that it, it frequently arises, this is true of the absenteeism problem you raised earlier as well, arises in context where as a matter of official government policy, healthcare is free, right? But of course, for the doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers who are providing it, it's not free, their time is not free, their effort is not free. And if you don't allow something like a market to function, if you pay them very low salaries and say they have to give services to anyone who wants them, then they often start breaking the rules and engage in corruption the much, in the much narrower sense, illegally taking kickbacks or not showing up to their jobs to provide services in the kind of black market. So I would love it if you could say a little bit more about how we reconcile this attractive ideal of public health as a human right to which all are equally entitled with the reality that money, money and monetary incentives and other forms of material inducements appear necessary to make the system function. And if we try to take them out of the system and pretend they don't exist at all, they often just get squeezed into other channels that might be even worse because everything is happening under the table or in the dark, or at least I don't know enough about that to assert that confidently, but that's certainly something that I've heard and read from other people who work in this area. Can you just say a little bit more about how we should think through that tension? Well, I think it becomes incredibly complicated. So if we take the example of informal payments at the service delivery level and we track it back, it, it's not, often not from a, a an inherently pernicious doctor who uh, who is looking to make a buck. It's coming from a, an, an individual who has a family to support um, and whose wages are abhorrently low and then begs the question, all right, well, why are their wages abhorrently low? And it often manages to get back. Either it's stuck in the procurement phase, in which case we can say, all right, there's a misallocation of funds, of health funds at the budgetary level. Um, so the Arguably, the health budget is sufficient, but it's being misused. Or it's going up higher to at central level, there's embezzlement or something to that effect. Or it could be a, a greater functional, um, dysfunction, sorry, dysfunctional aspect of the country at large, depending on the country you're talking about, where they, there's not enough tax revenue that's being generated because, let's say, the informal market is much stronger than the formal market, which wouldn't be a situation of corruption. Um, but typically, in countries where you have service delivery uh, level corruption, it's because of a dysfunction higher up in the chain. Um, most people who are working in the healthcare field are not motivated by the monetary gain. They're motivated by the chance to save a life, to help people at least the doctors that I've spoken to are. So I think it's, it's, it's problematic to focus on the service delivery level corruption and think that it's, an, it's isolated uh, on its own. And when you pay doctors enough, they don't feel the need necessarily to be corrupt. I mean, it's, it's possible. And, and it is possible to pay healthcare professionals a living uh, or a wage that is you know, in accordance with their efforts. And that is a political decision. So I want to maybe pick up on this a little bit. There are a few different aspects of this I want to talk about, and I know we don't have much time left, but just a, a couple of additional questions. So on that issue of call it 
low-level bribery or corruption at the at the service or provider level. And we sometimes, especially in the health field, they like to use this this euphemism, informal payments. But I mean, basically, these are illegal bribes or illegal gratuities um, paid at the service level. So. I'm entirely persuaded that you're correct, that that problem is not just an isolated problem of, of bad actors at that lower level, uh, but that instead it's a systemic problem. And that we see, at least, you know, there are always bad apples everywhere, but when we see this pervasively at the provider level, it's a signal that there's something out of whack in the system as a whole, and it goes much higher up. So I'm, that doesn't strike me as... I shouldn't say it doesn't strike me as controversial. Maybe someone would disagree with it, but you've totally persuaded me that that's correct. But that does invite the following question. So given that, does it make sense? Would it be a good idea as a matter of policy to crack down on those informal payments or, or bribes at the service provider level, assuming for the moment that in the short to medium term, there's nothing we can do about the higher level systemic issues? So to take absenteeism as an example, there have been programs that have sent out basically auditors to check about whether doctors and nurses have showed up at the clinic and you know, cut their salaries or impose other kind of penalties if they don't. So if, you're, if you have, a let's say, a given relatively poor country where healthcare absenteeism is a big problem, you could do this. You could invest a lot of money in auditing these systems to put a lot more pressure on people to show up to work. Or you could say we're not going to do that because in unless and until we can address these broader systemic issues, it would be unfair or ineffective or both to try to crack down on lower level or service delivery level absenteeism or bribery. So I'm curious about how you think about that policy question. I realize it's a bit unfair to ask it in the general and abstract without a particular specific country context, but I hope you see what I'm getting at, right? I'm not sure whether the lesson I should take away from what you just said is, hey, until we can fix the systemic issues, don't try to penalize doctors or nurses who aren't showing up for work or asking for informal payments. Or you could be saying, yes, we need to do that. Yes, we should crack down, but we should understand that that's not going to solve the problem entirely. That's only an incremental step that needs to be part of a broader, at some point, a broader systemic reform package. Uh, I think it kind of goes back again to what I said um, throughout the the talk is that um, what kind of corruption can you live with? And I think there is there is an argument that sometimes corruption can actually facilitate better health outcomes because if you're not cracking down on informal payments and that incentivizes healthcare workers who otherwise would have to seek some other occupation because they have families to feed, um, that incentivizes them to go to work and to be able to work uh, and improve health outcomes. I, I mean, it's, it's unpalatable um, to say, well, there's certain corruption that maybe we need to just turn a blind eye to, but I think I'm not sure there's a better, necessarily a better way. Um, and certainly those who are, are sort of closer to the implementation of, of reforms um, would have, you know, certainly other things to say about that, especially based on their experience. But I think when we take look at the practical implications of cracking down on healthcare professionals 
in situations where they where they rely on those uh, informal payments to to be able to feed their families, it, it it becomes very problematic. And I'll give you an example. So in in Uganda, there was a dramatic dr- reduction that was uh, measurable in um, the levels of bribery that were being taken um, by healthcare professionals in in healthcare institutions, and. It was because there was this um, health monitoring unit that was um, headed by um, the minister herself, and they went ahead and actually kind of ambushed healthcare professionals by going to health, uh, going undercover, and um, and then being solicited for for bribes. And then you know there was this grand video, for example, where the minister takes off a burqa and it's exposed that she. Um, she was being asked for a bribe and, and then it became this very public thing. But it, I mean, Ugandan doctors were being paid abhorrently low salaries. Um, of course, it reduced bribery because they didn't want to be fined and they didn't want to have, um, they didn't, they didn't want to be implicated by, by this health monitoring unit. But I, I would, I would ask the question, has that improved health outcomes? If your overall objective in a health system is to improve health outcomes, um, then at that type of low level, and, and I'm wholly appreciative that a small bribe can mean very much to, to an, the individual having to pay that bribe. But I think on a systems level, um, you have to ask yourself how much of the corruption that's taking place is actually enabling the system to function. That's fascinating because I could easily imagine somebody looking at the data, pointing to the Ugandan example as a big success story. There was a specific intervention. We have a measurable outcome, bribery of uh, healthcare workers, doctors and nurses and others. Uh, We assume bribery is bad. We can show that after the intervention, that bad behavior drops considerably. And I take it what you're saying is we should maybe be a little bit cautious about declaring this intervention a success. Because even though it might have reduced the unlawful conduct, what we really care about is, well, we care about many things, but we care about the quality of health outcomes overall. And presumably, we also care about the distributional or equality uh, implications of different policies. And we might care about the long-term effects as well in terms of the incentives of talented people to become doctors, say, as opposed to uh, pursue other professions. And I take it you're saying, you know, we don't necessarily know, even if the program decreased bribery, that it actually contributed to the ultimate social outcomes that we're interested in. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Is that your is that kind of the the punchline that you're driving at with that example? Yes, um, and just to 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 sort of name drop that uh, research was led by a professor of international development at, at the University of Birmingham, Heather Market, and um, that I can provide you with the um, the link to that if you'd like. That's great. Uh, we can also it actually that in show notes. Go, it did actually go into into detail um, about how on paper it looked like this health monitoring unit was successful, but when you dig a little deeper and do sort of a qualitative or anthropological look, it's n- not really the the winner. So we're we're just about out of time, but let me, if you'll indulge me, I want to ask one last question that builds on that exchange that we just had. So. 
the Ugandan intervention that uh, Professor Marquette and others looked into may be an example of an intervention that we might think was a big success, but that maybe is more uh, doubtful. I'd love if we could to end on a somewhat more optimistic or hopeful note. So can you give any examples, one or more examples, of interventions targeted at corruption in the health sector that you think really did have a significant positive effect? Are there examples that you think illustrate the kinds of progress that can be made on this issue with the right kind of policy interventions? And maybe you could talk about something at the at the retail service level, maybe coming back to our earlier exchange, there are interventions that you think have addressed some of the higher level issues related to undue or improper influence. Is there anything that you can point to as a positive or encouraging example of the sorts of interventions that can really help fight corruption and make people's lives better? Or uh, is your bottom line, at least as of now, still pretty bleak on a, in terms of our ability to address this problem? Well, I'm always going to say that we need more we need more action in the health sector on anti-corruption. Um, but I recently wrote a um, a case study for uh, an upcoming report from the World Bank, the Global Report on Anti-Corruption, and I looked specifically at the case of Ukraine, which has undergone a lot of anti-corruption reforms. And of course, they're not perfect and they're not finished. Um, but I think it speaks a lot to the sectoral approach that is being um, kind of driven by the likes of curbing corruption and um, is slowly but surely gaining traction in sort of the international public health community. Um, and what has ha been happening in Ukraine is that there's been sort of pain points of corruption that have been identified by the Ministry of Health. So what are the, what are the points in the system that are hugely corrupt but that are most undermining our overall objective, which is to improve human health. So I would, I would slightly um, or want to go at it from a slightly different angle than you suggested, what kind of anti-corruption reforms have been, have been successful in the health system and say it's not necessarily so important to, um, that anti-corruption shouldn't be the objective in the health system. The, health, the purpose of a health system is to improve health. It's not to do good anti-corruption. So the question should always be, how can we weave in anti-corruption to enable the best health outcomes? So what's been done in Ukraine is there have been points in the system that were found to be hugely inefficient and at the same time, hugely corrupt. So procurement, for example, and many people will be very familiar with the Prezaro example that has um, been used to, to reduce um, public spending costs and corruption in public spending. Um, the Ministry of Health has actually outsourced um, many of the national programs. So for cancer, for example, or um, for many heart conditions, have outsourced that to uh, international organizations like Crown Agents and UNDP and UNICEF, and they do the procurement for them using very transparent procurement processes, and it enables a much wider market. So not just having to focus on um, providers in Ukraine and, and beyond. Uh, or just beyond the borders. So this sort of intervention has, has reduced the overall cost and allowed greater access for the population. They're also onboarding all primary care providers onto a national uh, health service, which is a reimbursement program. 
and they are in inputting capitation as opposed to a sort of a less efficient way of reimbursing costs. So rather than paying for beds, they're paying for actual treatments for people. So that's incentivizing um, improving treatment provision for individual patients. It comes with its own problems, but it's much better than paying strictly for a bed because then you end up with hospitals full of beds and no patients. They've also involved a lot of civil society and, and garnered a lot of public attention for reforms um, so that people are aware, they know their health rights, and um, they can then advocate for themselves. Part of this National Health Service has been that patients sign up with their healthcare provider. And if they are unhappy with them, they can sign up somewhere else and the money follows that patient. So depending on where you're registered, that's where the finances will flow. It's a bit like the UK system in that way. And they weren't trying to necessarily tackle corruption. They were trying to improve health provision and access to the citizens. And uh, slowly but surely, they'll be onboarding um, secondary and tertiary care. But by doing that, you're focusing on your ultimate goal, which is improving health outcomes and weaving it in. And that is really the sort of the basis of the sectoral approach. And there are lots of, um, you know, indicative impacts or indicative outputs that are happening in Ukraine that indicate that this is maybe not fixing all of the corruption, but it is at least taking a good stab at it. And, and that's really encouraging. Great. Well, I'm thrilled to be able to end on an encouraging note, especially given that we live in such unencouraging times. But I really appreciate your taking time out of your schedule to speak with me and all of our listeners. Very much appreciate it. A lot to think through. And uh, this has been great. So again, this most recent episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, has featured Sarah Steingruber, an independent global health consultant and the global health lead for the Curbing Corruption web platform. Uh, Sarah, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, Matthew. A big thank you to Sarah Steingrüber for coming on the show and also for sending over all those interesting links. If you want, you can have a look into the show notes and find a plethora of more information about the topics Sarah and Matthew talked about. If you are interested in the Medicare Part D legislation and have access to CBS, you are in luck because there's an episode of 60 Minutes titled Under the Influence. And this episode covers the influence of drug lobbyists on passing a bill that kept drug prices high. I personally agree a lot with the statement that healthcare is a human right, and I hope that the monetization of our healthcare systems can be curbed. I don't know if you knew, but you can support Kickback by leaving a comment or a rating on iTunes, for example. You can also head over to Patreon and support us with a few or a few more dollars. Anything is much appreciated. If you think we are missing out on a hot topic in regards to corruption or you know someone who needs to be a guest on our show, don't be afraid to tweet us or write us an email. And it's very certain that we will answer you and write you an email as well. Kickback is a collaboration between the Global Anti-Corruption Blog and the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. Kickback is made by Matthew Stevenson, Niels Kürbis, Christopher Starke, and me, Jonathan Kleinpass. 
with original music by Kehan Golkar.